Good day, welcome to the Classical Music Pod. In this episode, we have a Bulgarian national breakfast. Discussion of the musical possibilities of a Vuvuzela. The most important comma in musical history. And a taste of hip hopera. Kanye West has written an opera. The rapper took to Twitter last week to announce the performance of his first ever opera, Nebuchadnezzar, which will take place at the Hollywood Bowl on November the 24th. So, by the time this is released, you should be able to read the reviews. The opera is set in the 6th century BC and, according to a press release, is based on the biblical story of the Babylonian king from the book of Daniel, which recounts Nebuchadnezzar's transition from wicked, imperious, self-declared ruler to a true believer who finds salvation in his faith. Unfortunately, the figure used for the opera's poster artwork was confirmed by the University of Chicago's Oriental Institute as being King Darius I of Persia, not King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. So a little blooper there. Uh, But in celebration of this news, we've compiled some of the very best Kanye quotes. I will go down as the voice of this generation. I'm like a vessel, and God has chosen me to be the voice and the connector. My greatest pain in life is that I'll never be able to see myself perform live. I'm a creative genius, and there's no other way to word it. I hope someone takes that out of context and just listens to us saying those things. (laughs) Another operatic first will be taking place next month in Vienna. For the first time in its 150-year history, the Vienna State Opera will be staging a work written by a woman. On the 8th, the premiere of Austrian composer Olga Neuwirth's new opera Orlando will take place. It's based on Virginia Woolf's groundbreaking novel, and all the key roles in creating the opera have been filled by women. Neuwirth wrote the libretto together with playwright Catherine Filou. It's being directed by Brit Polly Graham, and the costumes have been designed by Ray Kawakubo, founder of the fashion brand Comme des Garçons. Good stuff. That was the sound of booing as the winning contestants of a Parisian piano competition were announced. Why? Because they were not French. As the three finalists of the Long Thibault Crespin competition were revealed, the presumably majority French audience revealed their distaste. Two of the top three pianists were Japanese and one was Armenian. News to cheer to... Anna Maria Helsing has been named principal guest conductor of the BBC Concert Orchestra, the fifth new appointment the BBC has made in just under a year. The Finnish conductor said in a press release that the orchestra with so many high-caliber musicians offers exciting artistic opportunities and I can hardly wait to explore what we can achieve together. 
In other British orchestra news, the Royal Philharmonic has announced it is to part company with Prince Andrew after the disastrous BBC interview with Emily Maitlis. A spokesperson for the orchestra has said it is grateful to His Royal Highness for his support of the orchestra over the past 15 years. The news comes just a year after its music director, Charles Dutrois, resigned following multiple accusations of sexual assault. We should also report that the conductor and head of opera at the Royal Academy of Music, Gareth Hancock, has been sacked from his role at Glyndebourne after an employee brought a complaint of inappropriate behaviour against him. But that's it for sexual assault news, thank heavens. Fraud news, Tim. A former horn player at the Royal Opera House and London Symphony Orchestra has been jailed for 28 months for stealing nearly £186,000 while working as a researcher for the Performing Rights Society, which collects airtime royalties for professional musicians. Richard Clues, 52, who retired as a horn player after health problems began to affect his playing, pleaded guilty to one offence and repaid the money in full. However, this was not enough to spare him a jail sentence. News about our favourite Central St Martin's fashion graduate, Puss in Boots himself, Antonio Banderas. He's been papped conducting a brass band in his hometown of Malaga. That's it, really. You can watch the Spanish Maestro in action by following the link in the description below. Robes! Robes. Last week we reported a set of Chinese costumes worn by Dame Eva Turner, the first British Turando, were to be auctioned at William Wallace in our hometown of Salisbury. We can now tell you that they have fetched £1,200 and we look forward to catching former lay clerk Steve Abbott swanning around the Cathedral Close singing In Questa Regia. How long is a piece of string? What makes a bicycle stay upright? Why is yawning contagious? Can dogs look up? Tim, what have all these things got in common? Are they tracks off your debut album? Hey, look. The Basingstoke Connection will be releasing a fine disc in due course, but no, all of the above are unanswerable questions. What, really, the one about dogs? Unanswerable! This week we're talking about Charles Ives and his unorthodox game-changer, The Unanswered Question. It sounds like this. Sam, you are aware that Leonard Bernstein, one of the greatest musicians of the 20th century, gave a lecture where he analysed the significance and musical language of Ives' piece? Yes, I am. You're comfortable treading on the toes of the man who wrote West Side Story and Candide? I am indeed, Tim. I can nestle down in between those hairy toes of Lenny, because at no point in his Harvard lecture does he mention the Bulgarian national breakfast, which will become a cornerstone, the foundation of this analysis. Of course. Analysis. Before breakfast, or indeed whenever you're listening to this, you need to know when and where this piece was happening. Originally half of a pair of works called Two Contemplations, 
The Unanswered Question was written in 1908, a six to eight minute piece for strings, winds and solo trumpet. Did it cause much of a stir at the time? It caused zero stir, Timbo. There wasn't a performance for 38 years, and even then it was only performed by students. It wasn't until the 1940s, when he won the Pulitzer Prize, and 1950s, when his work started getting commercial recordings, that the world had really caught up with him. And what do you think was so revolutionary about his compositional style? Well, in my occasionally humble opinion, everything that makes him stand apart as a proper revolutionary is encapsulated in this piece. So let's look at it. There are three groups, strings, wind and brass. That sounds pretty standard. That much does, I grant you. But they are spatially and musically separate. The strings play an almost inert, slowed-down chorale, moving almost imperceptibly. This is how long the first chord is in real time. If we speed the chorale up, it sounds like this. It's kind of gentle, late romantic fluff in G major. One crucial factor that makes it feel both gentle and static is that it doesn't include chord 5, no dominant. Instead, lots of chord 3, 6 and 2. It's also a 13-bar phrase that repeats. 13? Yep, wonky and unlucky all at once. Against this G major tonality is the trumpet. In terms of the pitches selected to form this trumpet fanfare, they are kind of like the photonegative of G major. None of those fanfare notes fit into that G major chord, so we get something that feels totally alien. We've got Strings, who Ives calls the unmoving druids of the universe, and the trumpet posing these questions. And then the final choir, flutes and other humans... And what do the flutes do? They offer answers. And it is their increasing frustration and failure to move either the druids or the questioner that gives the piece its structure. It's like the inverse of Jeremy Paxman asking Michael Howard the same question 11 times in the late 90s. I'm sorry, I'm going to be is frightfully this? rude, but... Yes, you but can... I, I'm sorry. It's you, a quite you can straight put, you yes can put or the no. question, and I would, I, would yes you, no I would give you an Whereas Paxman got agitated because Michael Howard wasn't answering the question, the flutes get agitated because the trumpet doesn't listen to their answer. Good old horse face. Good old horse face. Just like Father Paxmus, the flute choir get faster in their frustration. They are cellerando, whilst the rest of the ensemble holds a steady tempo stretching the musical fabric of this disjointed piece even further apart. OK, so how does the Bulgarian breakfast come into this? Tim, you remember our trip. The trout, the mountains, the jazz clubs and the dangerous driving are all still lodged firmly in my mind. Well, then you'll no doubt remember the unconventional Bulgarian national breakfast, eggy bread, raspberry jam and feta cheese. Yum! It was a remarkably fortifying dish. I agree. But those three ingredients mix in absolutely no way. Not even in bit. The feta cheese makes a horrible lumpy addition to the jam, which, in turn, cannot sink into the bread because of the egg. Ives, Sam. Ives, I'm trying to lure you back to Ives. Fair enough. I'm on the way back round the envelope. 
The fetter is the flutes. The jam, the trumpet, and the strings are the stolid, immovable eggy bread. They do not mix, and that is ruddy revolutionary. As far as I can tell, the major trend when it comes to bringing together unusual elements in Western art music, up until this point, has been to try and find the commonalities. There's a beautiful tension in the way a Russian folk song is incorporated into a symphonic structure, or a popular drinking melody can become a Lutheran chorale given the right harmony. The general paradigm has been one of synthesis. Ives doesn't make an attempt at this. Instead, he's all about juxtaposing irreconcilably different elements. Like oil and water. Or eggy bread and jam. Mm, You're right, you don't get that with Bernstein. From the moment someone put a drone under their organum in the 12th century, we've had written evidence that humans thought that through musical cooperation they could achieve something greater together than by themselves. Harmony, counterpoint, constructive combination of any kind, where the two parts interact and are complementary, have been unquestioned facts of music. I think Charles Ives' weird genius is in questioning that fact, that assumption, What about if, in music as in life, most of the time we're just doing our own thing? Isn't that what most humans are doing most of the time? Rather than pulling as a collective super society, aren't we mostly sort of idly bumbling about? Is that fine too? He poses that question and then answers it through music. It's fine, just jarring and unacknowledged. So really it's Charles Ives' answered question. It's that, and it's a Bulgarian national breakfast. Composer fact file, Charles Ives. Born 1874 in Danbury, Connecticut, the same year as Arnold Schoenberg. His father was a local professional musician who enjoyed experimenting with bitonality. He was a baseball fan as a teen for local club Hopkins and would later play football for Yale. Age 14, he became his local church organist. He never had a composing career. Instead, he worked in insurance. He saw the classical music world as emasculated. Its musicians, he felt, were pansies controlled by women. He was good at insurance, too, and his training manual in estate planning, The Amount to Carry, is a classic still used in business schools in the 1980s. As a result of a diabetes diagnosis, Ives retired in 1930, gradually becoming better known for his music until his death in 1954. He was described by musicologist Lawrence Kramer as being as famous for his misogyny as his music during his life. He once said his reason to remain an amateur for most of his life was... I wouldn't let my family starve on my dissonances. For those that want change and the drive to see it through Take two shots of Smirnoff and lay down the clue It doesn't have to get violent Nobody wants a bloody war in the environment The truth discussed with old timers in retirement And youths being silenced by the sirens The truth is us
A couple of weeks ago, I spoke to Josephine Pomal, the lead singer and founding member of Josephine and the Artisans. They are a hip-hop band, which is a crossover genre I'd never come across before, so I invited her around to find out a bit more. Josephine, first of all, you founded Josephine and the Artisans, I is did. that correct? Yeah. It's a sort of self-described hip-hop band. Uh-huh. When you founded the band, did you hope just to combine two styles that you particularly liked, or were you actually hoping to make more of a statement about what is actually quite a big cultural gap? I think a bit of both. So studying contemporary music at university, mm-hmm. it was kind of a natural path uh, for my own skill set. So I was the only classical singer on my course mm. and I found that I thrived in that area and I've really loved classical music. In fact, it brought me closer to classical music being away from it and not studying it every day. Yeah, which is, that's interesting. Yeah, it's, it was incredible. And, and also I felt I was bringing something different to the table uh, yeah. around different musicians who had never really kind of heard much classical music. Mm. So from that point... Yes, I, it was something that was a self-development. But what I also thought about while I was travelling through that journey is actually being with people, at, you know, my peers and in my course, the fact that they hadn't had much experience listening or writing classical music, it made me think, well, then what do non-musicians, young people, think of classical music? Mm. And it, my awareness became about that, young people who can't maybe afford to play an instrument or don't have access to play a classical instrument or go to a classical concert, they have this stereotype and negative opinions. Mm -hmm. And it's completely true. Don't get me wrong. I think there's this barrier to young people that if they've not had specific theory training, then how can they possibly understand it? And music for young people, I mean, they consume it every day. You see them standing at a bus stop, sharing Mm. music, dancing to music... It's just what drives them. And so I decided that, you know what, there are plenty of hip-hop artists, DJs, sampling classical music all the time. I'm not doing anything new there. I'm not even going to say that because what I feel I'm doing is putting the classical voice to it. Mm. You don't really kind of hear a lot of classical voices leading this type of fusion. And it is quite interesting because when we perform Josephine the Artisans at festivals which are full of, you know, people who love diverse fusion music. And they really get it. You know, it's, it's people that, from an older generation, say to the two rappers in my van, Mike and Jermaine, they come up to them at the end, they say, I never listened to hip-hop before. Mm. You've changed my mind. And so it's doing, the, it's doing another opposite kind of yeah. effect. And it's yeah. amazing. And that's exactly, I mean, it's, it's doing more than I thought it would. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, I've had, I, you know... It's quite interesting sometimes when you hear a straight classical musician's opinion on what we're doing. But mm. actually, to be honest, all our music, I write my classical melodies. Mm. I'm not trying to do another Mozart piece, another no. Beethoven piece, and then rip it off and, and, and almost, in their opinion, destroy it. Yeah. I mean, it's blas- blasphemous. I mean, how dare I? Yeah. But, you know, but I just think music is so subjective and... It's out there to be appreciated. And I think people get so into this, let's be critical, Mm. rather than just, let's define things, let's... Let's let's move on to another thing. But 
you should always find something of yeah. enjoyment and appreciate it. Mm. I mean, you mentioned that you've been on tour this summer and you've been to some mm. pretty, you've played at some pretty amazing places. Yeah. You played at Glastonbury this year, am yeah, I right? Yeah, this summer has been amazing, actually. Like, um, so it's the second time we played at Glastonbury, but we did four shows this year there. Wow. What stage were you at? Uh, so we were at the Avalon and we were also at the Bandstand, which is a brilliant location because it's right by the Pyramid. And so people, you know... The, Actually, we were on just after Bastille finished the pyramid, so right. everyone flocked to go and get food, and there was just us hip hopper in the middle of all these like you know all the food stores. It was just brilliant. We got a huge audience. It was yeah. fantastic, and that was exposure. And that, absolutely, you can't buy music exposure. It's just, yeah. You can't. <laughs> so thank you, Toby, for having me. <laughs> you, you mentioned that you've got your just about to release or have released or just about to so release. So we've we've released one video already, and we have got an upcoming video. So the one we just released was actually footage of our tour yeah. and behind the scenes footage and that's been synced to Spread Your Wings which was on the EP we released in the summer and the one we are about to release is pretty special um, we sadly have are living in a world that's becoming more and more desensitised to knife crime and so I spent a lot of time talking to charities and visiting families who have lost a loved one to knife crime and Basically, I wanted to use a piece of music that we wrote last year called If You Want Peace and create some visuals to not only promote peace just out there, but also for charities to use to creatively engage with young people. It's just a positive message um, that there is another direction, another path. And it lists in the video not only shows incredible charity work because it's not about a negative story. It's about showing the, the amazing hope and the incredible work that charities are doing every single day, mm. striving to try and change people's minds and show them there is a different path and show them that there is support where it's needed. That's what's important. And I, and I just wanted to contribute to that incredible work yeah. with music. Well, Josephine, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you oh, very much. Thank you. Thank you. And we shall wait on 10 Dooks for the new video coming out in a couple of weeks' time. Yes, in a couple of weeks' time, I will let you know. <laughs> That was the wonderful Josephine Pumall and the video that she was talking about you can find at the link in the description below. Now for something completely different. Thanks so much for meeting me here, Tim. I just needed a quick alibi. No problem at all, Sam. It's a little unusual for me to go to Woking, but it is just down the road, and I haven't had pizza in ages. I'll probably remember the event specifically in 17 or 18 years' time. We're here to review the new disc from British trumpet superstar Alison Balsam, Royal Fireworks. Terrific. Uh, while I just grab some doubles, why not tell us a bit about Alison and who else is playing on the disc? Just tap just water, thanks. A real A-lister. This is Balsam's 12th solo CD. She's played with all the great and the good. 
and is a former gramophone artist of the year. Last night, the prom soloist, and she's done quite a few properly interesting things, like conceiving and starring in the stage show Gabriel, which was on at the Globe a few years ago. She's also premiered new trumpet concertos uh, by Guy Barker, amongst others, as well as performing the Thea Musgrave, Bram Tovey and Kang Chen concerti on the regular. So she's a real ambassador for new music. Absolutely. And as artistic director for the Cheltenham Music Festival since 2019, she's commissioned lots of new pieces there. However, this disc is completely the other end of the spectrum. As the title suggests, Raw Fireworks includes Handel's music, written to celebrate the end of the War of the Austrian Succession, alongside other Baroque trumpety bits, sometimes in new special arrangements, but mostly this is familiar repertoire. The whole disc is performed by the Bolton Ensemble, a cherry-picked band of Baroque stars, including Friends of the Pod, James Toll and Guy Button. Mm, Have they given you any inside scoop about the recording process? Apparently, the sessions were imbued with Cricket World Cup fever, and session breaks were dominated by the impressive seam bowling of cellist Joe Crouch. Mm, that's vital information. The kind of collegiate approach that that suggests does come through on the disc. For the first few tracks, Bossom is very much in the ensemble, and the mix is of a chamber group, not soloist and accompaniment. That does change later in the disc with the Purcell trumpet sonata, which is very scrummy indeed. Also on the disc are Telemann's trumpet concerto, Purcell's funeral sentences for Queen Mary, used very evocatively in A Clockwork Orange, and a healthy dose of bark, highlights from the Christmas oratorio rearranged by conductor Simon Wright to include a six-trumpet lineup. How seasonal and jolly. It is indeed, and the whole disc, the recording process included, does feel very jolly. It's got some sumptuous sections on it, the string adagio in the Purcell is just mwah. Uh, I want to take a bath in it and I, I want to rub its essence into my scalp and feel its essential oils. Mm. Uh, the other friend of the pod, Nick Mulroy, said Purcell was Britain's finest ever composer this week. He got a little bit of trolling for it this week, which uh, was mm. all good-humoured, all mm. good-humoured trying. But this disc certainly adds a bit of credence to that argument. When Bolson makes it sound so easy, you can take it for granted that she's basically playing the entire disc in the stratosphere, in a range that very few trumpet players will ever get near. It's part of the trumpet where you start worrying about the player's health, especially as it's usually a portly, bold man going red. You know, Mm. that's a beetroot colour in performance. But she makes it sound effortless, all the more impressive as she and the rest of the trumpeters are playing on natural trumpets, uh, which I've tried to play a few times and I've always thought of as catastrophones. No valves, are there? No valves at all. They're basically technologically equivalent to a vuvuzela, (laughs) <laughs> or uh, a hosepipe with a mouthpiece on. Which is how Mark Walker taught us, taught us to play back when we were six or seven years old. The great Mark Walker. Mm. The probability of hitting any note on a catastrophone is really very small indeed, and yet she does it with total ease. I think even Crispian Steele Perkins, who is the sort of godfather of early trumpet playing, doesn't... When you listen to him, you're aware of how difficult the task it is in a way that when Bolson's playing, you aren't. Mm. You would assume that this was the easiest thing in the world for her. Mm. And do you have any reservations about the disc? I suppose there is a slight lingering feeling of, does the world need this disc? Mm. Aside from the rearrangements, we've heard all of this music quite a lot before. And period instruments, though exciting, aren't revolutionary anymore. We're sort of 30, 40 years into that sound world. Is it just a disc they wanted to make and could make because she's amassed such clout in the industry? 
you know, she's earned that clout, but is it just a onanistic exercise? Mm. Eventually, I came to the conclusion that Balsam and her band justify this recording by being a serious enough set of artists with an individual voice that means you want to hear their version of these works. We've mm. already heard a version before, but we want to hear their version. Mm. That's why this disc is worth getting. Not to hear pieces we know well, but to hear these guys take on them. This is an Apple, not a Microsoft kind of disc. It's not an innovation, it's an elevation. This interview has been exceptionally rare. You might not speak on this subject again. Is there anything you feel has been left unsaid that you would like to say now? No, I don't think so. I think you've probably dragged out most of, the, most of what is required. You've got to pick a pocket or two. Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice's Don't Cry For Me Argentina from the musical Evita and... J.S. Bach's Prelude in C. It won't be easy, you'll think it strange When I try to explain how I feel That I still need your love after all that I've done You won't believe me All you'll see is a girl you once knew Although she's dressed up You've got to pick a pocket or two. Tim, you've been out and about again. I have. I popped down to Southwark Cathedral on my horse earlier this week to see In Place and Time, a collaboration between the City of London Symphonia and the publishers Faber and Faber, the latter of whom were celebrating their 90th anniversary. Uh, the concert was comprised of four works by Benjamin Britten, interspersed by readings of two large T.S. Eliot poems. Why Britain and T.S. Eliot together in particular? Well, both were closely associated with the publisher. Eliot became director of Faber and Faber when he left his city job at Lloyd's Bank. He's actually American, I didn't know that. No, me neither. Became British later. And Britain was the founding composer of Faber Music, which is its sister company. So a couple of major scalps there, and a neat excuse to hear works by both men side by side. Certainly. And what pieces were being performed? Well, we kicked off with Britain's Canticle 5, The Death of St Narcissus. Sounds like a film. <laughs> it does a bit, doesn't it? Yeah, like a bad one with... Um... Vin Diesel. Yeah, Canticle yeah. Canticle 5. <laughs> Written for tenor and harp to words by Eliot, and on this occasion performed by Joshua Ellicott and Lucy Haslar. He wrote the piece towards the end of his life, actually, in 1974, whilst recuperating from a heart operation, and, funnily enough, reading a lot of poetry by Eliot. He apparently admired the writer for the clarity and security of his language. It should be noted that the operation is actually the main reason for the harp accompaniment. He wasn't well enough to accompany Peter Pears on the piano himself. That is a good bit of trivia, Tim. Thank you. That is. This was followed by a reading from Eliot's poem Ash Wednesday by the period actor Alex Jennings, mm. you may recognise, which interspersed performances from the Epiphany Consort. He sang Britain's gorgeous hymn to the Virgin, written when he was just 16. And the Serenade for Tenor, Horn and Strings, also performed by Joshua Ellicott with Stephen Sterling and the City of London Symphonia. It's my favourite comma in all of classical music, tenor, horn and strings. Yeah, I fell foul of the same <laughs> grammar error myself. It's like a nice brass band piece. Mm. Tenor horn. 
and strings. The second half comprises movements from Britain's variations on a theme of Frank Bridge interspersed with readings by another actor, Juliet Stevenson. Oh yeah, I have heard of her. Yeah, does lots of period as well. These readings were from Little Gilding, which is the final poem in Eliot's magical four quartets. Mm, it sounds like you were rather taken with the literary side of things. What mm. were the musical highlights? Without a shadow of a doubt, it was the serenade for tenor, comma, horn and strings. I know the piece fairly well, but I've never heard it perform so beautifully. Mm. Really, Joshua Ellicott has the perfect voice for Britain. He's got that ghostly, piercing, Peter Quinty tone that you associate with his music. But he pulls it off in a sensitive and wonderfully controlled manner. Stephen Sterling's horn playing was also excellent. So the cathedral's right in the middle of the city and you can still make out traffic noise and bustle when you're inside. But when mm. Sterling began to play the prologue, it immediately nullified any sense of claustrophobia. You could really feel the atmosphere in the room shift. And for that 20 minutes or so, it felt like we were in the eye of a storm. So very rarely do I not want a piece of music to end. And this was one of those moments I lay back in my cushion and I thought, please... Don't ever stop. It sounds like you've embraced the relaxing atmosphere then. Yeah, I've been to a few of these relaxed concerts and I think this is one of the more successful ones. Initially, I was a bit irritated by people wandering around whilst I was trying to listen. And actually, I'm not sure the opening canticle was the right thing to do. Yeah. It wasn't until the excellent Epiphany Consort sang that the audience started to engage with the music. Perhaps if they'd opened with that piece, which feels more assured, more of a statement, then the atmosphere that I think the organisers were after would have emerged a bit quicker. The, yeah. the canticles are a bit sort of jarring and strange. Mm. I really hope the City of London's Symphonia keep doing gigs like this. I would happily take any of my non-classical friends along in a way that I wouldn't to the South Bank or the Barbican or certainly Cadogan Hall. And that's because this kind of concert attracts a much more diverse audience. Mm. There was a genuine feeling of community in the room. It was full of smiles and snuggling. And actually, breaking up the music with readings, as simple as, as it sounds, is a remarkably effective way of dispelling any stuffiness. So watch out for their next concert. It comes highly recommended. Help! Hello? This library is enormous! Tim, you've left the reverb on again. Oh, sorry. I was distracted looking through the amazing selection of scores available on the Encoder app. Ooh, what's that? It's a music library app you can download right now. Start with a one-week free trial, then subscribe to access the complete sales and higher catalogues of 100 publishers, including Boozy and Hawks, Baron Writer, Chester and Novello. I must download it from my app store. How do you spell Encoder? N K O D A. N K O D A. N K O D A. Simon Rattle, 
199 subscription feeds your classical addiction. One week free trial gets you going. Annotate and share your going. 999 subscription feeds your classical addiction. Earlier this week, I took my bike over Sydenham Hill to see the director and librettist Laura Attridge. Following on from my conversation with Daisy Evans in last week's episode, I wanted to delve a bit deeper into the subject of gender representation in opera. Despite an initial disaster with microphones, we soon got into a thought-provoking discussion that touched on wider themes of creativity and one's right to tell a story. The following is a highlights reel of that conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Drop it, it isn't worth it, and actually, you're not very good at it. (laughs) Laura, first of all, it would be good to get a bit of background about yourself. I know you're an opera and theatre director, you're also a librettist, uh, you're a Royal College of Music (laughs) graduate and published poet, and as a child of both the musical and literary worlds, did working in opera always seem inevitable to you? It's it's a long story that I'll I'll tell in a very short version. I've I've spoken about it in a few interviews um, um, and a, a recent piece on for Humans of Theatre, which is a, mm-hmm. a wonderful account on Instagram that profiles different artists. And the the short version is I always wanted to be an opera singer from the age of right. I think four. My parents sat me down in front of a very old VHS of The Magic Flute, and I fell in love with it and went around singing Queen of the Night mm-hmm. stuck in my head um, absolutely so I, I always want that's what I wanted to do I wanted to be a performer I did a lot of performing at school singing and acting and then found and I'd always written and basically I followed the path towards being an opera singer via an English literature degree mm. and then three years in arts and administration and then went to college going oh finally age 25 mm-hmm. and during that year discovered I very much did not want to be an opera singer but through the the lens of opera, I found directing and writing in a in a completely different light. So I'd, I'd always done that, and I directed my first opera and wrote my first libretto in that same year. And those two things gave me so much more joy and I hate the word, but validation and feeling a sense of self than my best singing, my most my highest achievements in in that year. Is there any part of you that misses that singing? dream or is it completely not something you think about really really not no that's Um, great (laughs) I sing I sing once a year I'm about to do my first Christmas caroling gig tomorrow and um I very um a very kind colleague and friend of mine still hires me to go out and sing carols and I'm I'm the only one there going hooray singing and all the all the opera singers who had a year of it going oh yeah singing I completely (laughs) understand I haven't I sing classically once a year at a similar carol there you go yeah. <laughs> with my co-host Sam, looking forward to that, Sam. So what I thought would be interesting to talk about is yeah. gender roles in opera, and this is this huge discussion. And I, I spoke to another female director recently, Daisy Evans, who I believe you know. I do indeed. And about the place of the canon in the 21st century and its ability when presented in a traditional format to reinforce gender and racial stereotypes. And she spoke about a shift of lens rather than erasure being the key to addressing these stereotypes. I know you've 
written a paper on this, you've spoken about this. Was that something that you'd agree with, what Daisy says about shifting the lens? Absolutely. I, do, I don't know Daisy's work as, as perhaps as well as I should, but I, I have been aware of her, her work and her approach for some years, and I'm fascinated that that's the, the language that she used in, in mm. your discussion. Um, she and I make very different work, and it's, it's wonderful that that philosophy of shifting the lens, as, as she calls it, um, manifests itself in, in very different products, I mm. guess, because I'm sure that she would say the same, we work in very different ways and with probably quite different philosophies, practically speaking, when you get your, your hands on a piece uh, as to what shifting the lens means. And that's, a, that's, I think, an example of actually a practical example of what I'm about to say, which is for me, and this is what I've written on and I've spoken on, it's about you as a practitioner, as a director, or as a designer or as a singer, bringing yourself and your story and your your own subjective understanding of the world and how you experience life to a piece, to an opera. And that will be different depending on who you are. It will be different depending on what the social climate, the, the, what's on the news. It will be different depending on what year it is. It will depend on how you're feeling that morning when you get out of bed and go into the rehearsal room. And it will depend on who you are working with. So for me... I certainly don't feel that the answer is to do away with the canon. Mm. It was really interesting at the recent Alberto conference that I attended uh, this year. I spoke at the conference last year and, and I attended um, this year to because the subject was uh, um, mm. the canon in the 21st century, mm-hmm. which I have a lot to say because most of my engagements as a director are, are for canon pieces. And it really is about bringing oneself in all that uniqueness to the uniqueness of that piece. And it's dismissing, I think, the sort of genius thing and the perfection of the work and treating it like it's something perfect. But also, I mean, I suppose the people, people's approach is to fix the problems. So you either approach it and go, oh, it's amazing and I worship it and I will do it in all its tra- tradition, whatever that means, or I will fix it. And I had two reviewers, um, for actually two different of my productions last year, The Rape of Lucretia and Don Giovanni, both mm. with their problems, air quotes. Two reviewers um, each complained that I hadn't fixed the problems presented by the operas. And I thought, great, I didn't try to, I wasn't mm. trying to. My approach is in between those two things is absolutely to honour and respect the brilliance and the extraordinary qualities of those canon pieces which have been with us for so long and still have resonance while also discovering and leaning into, as I put it, my discomfort. And actually the places I feel the most discomfort are the places I lean in the most. Mm. And for me, with pieces like Don Giovanni and The Rape of Lucretia, that served me very well. And it's not just me. I'm not the um, the dictator. I am a part of a collaborative team, all of whom are extraordinary artists who each bring their understanding of the world and the piece and of and of gender and of race and of all of those important qualities that we have to discuss in terms of a piece that perhaps was written in another time. But we have to remember that the creators of that piece in in the first place, and I acknowledge that as a librettist now writing pieces for the future, had their limitations as well. They had subjective viewpoints of the world that don't allow them to be universal. But the more that you can bring your own story to that story and ask what does their story provide? What does my story provide? How do they meet in the middle? And how can I then look at my audience and ask what their story might be? And it's it's a meeting of all of those things. And I don't think there's one answer to how you solve a problematic mm. opera. But I think those operas have merit for a reason. And they are to be honoured and they are to be loved. And they are to be produced in all sorts of different ways that might speak to different audiences in different manners and, and ask different questions. But 
And it's not that I believe that every single canon piece is something I would want to tackle and I think that I could make work, which, again, is is perhaps the wrong word, but that I feel that I could bring that approach to and and successfully Mm. because I think there is a very big difference, for example, and I tackled that this summer doing the Magic Flute for the first time. There's a big difference between, say, sexism or racism or misogyny or whatever, prejudice of, of some kind, represented on stage in a character or a misogynistic or sexist or racist piece. Mm. And I think that those tend to get conflated in a really unhelpful way. For example, with the Magic Flute, you've got priests and Sarastro explicitly just saying women are to be ordered around, women are liars, women are this, this, this. And you can't get away from that. What we really did with that is, is to lean again lean into how uncomfortable Mm. uh that is not apologize for it not paper over it not try and fix it or put it to the side and pretend and hope that the audience doesn't notice that there's some sexism there Mm. but to really make that central to the way that we realize the story yeah same with the rape of lucretia last year what i realized was the difficulties i had with the story were not in connecting to the story of lucretia and the way that that was presented just in terms of, of the narrative but I had issue actually with the two characters who are supposed to be our way in, which is the chorus. The chorus were in the way. The way that they were telling the story was limited uh, and limited very much in the way that I imagine Ronald Duncan and, and Benjamin Britten were mm. in their understanding of the female experience of rape. So actually finding ways in like that for me to go, well, where do I feel uncomfortable and how can I kind of dial that up so yeah. that the audience also feels that discomfort and sees the inadequacies perhaps in the piece yeah. um, or the characters in the piece? Yeah, of course. Is that an enjoyable, uh, enjoyable perhaps the, the wrong word, but is that a satisfying experience, getting almost into the psyche of somebody like Britain compared to, say, with Mozart? Is that part of the thrill for you in directing? I suppose as an English literature graduate, I was never interested in, well, what did the writer mean? Yeah. So actually, interestingly, I mean, that's a really good question. I don't think of myself as going, well, what did Mozart mean what was his intention because that way madness lies it's like when you spoke about spoke about the concept of that piece that you wrote and how you looking for a concept and that's something that you're not really interesting i'll put a link in the description (laughs) below for people to read that it's a really interesting piece so i'm not i'm not necessarily trying to worry myself with what the intention was but i am looking at the pieces that's in front of me and there will be inadequacies in it or limitations perhaps is, is a less accusatory word yeah limitations in what it has to offer now yeah. But actually, the, the joy of a director approaching a piece on the page is that you have the power of realisation and putting that on stage. So there's so much that you can do to play with how you feel about the, the original piece. There was another point that, again, Daisy brought up that I thought was interesting in that some might be wary of saying straight white men don't have the right to tell anyone's story or just anyone's story and the argument which could just as easily be applied to novels or film is that this kind of attitude makes a taboo of imagination and that therefore that could lead to an environment in which the only acceptable form of storytelling is memoir essentially so what what do you you say to people who might make this point do you think that's a valid argument it's interesting when that argument arises it's usually being posited by straight white men mm-hmm. yep um, it's a very defensive attitude to have. And yes, I'm, I'm female, so there's that demographic there, but I am immensely privileged. I am a white, um, cis, 
presenting middle class women. And I absolutely acknowledge my privileges there and my privilege that causes a limitation in understanding and, and worldview and world experience. And I'm and I myself, I find myself getting defensive sometimes, particularly as a, as a writer. But I question that privilege all the time. And I question that in relation to storytelling. So that's just from a personal point of view. I notice those responses and I've noticed them in some some rather heated conversations on Twitter, for example, this year, where I've been quite shocked to see some men, some white cis men on Twitter in the opera industry who I deeply admire and respect in their craft and in their artistry who have been using that argument mm. not to have a dialogue. Yeah. And I understand absolutely that we are in we are in an age where that demographic of human being is discovering that they do not have the universal viewpoint and they cannot speak for everyone. But we are in the opera industry, we are so many years, let alone like decades behind other art forms in acknowledging that that is problematic. If you look at the study of literature, we have had decades worth of dialogue about colonial literature, British writers going out to India and then writing about the Indian experience and completely appropriating all of that cultural material Mm. and thinking that they understood what it was to live in that culture and to be part of it and that they could speak for the native population. Orientalism in a way. Absolutely. So there's discussion going on in literature that has a long history. Uh, Theatre, my goodness, there's a lot of conversation going on in theatre right now about who has what right to tell what story. And I would say to those using that argument in the opera industry, go do your darn research because this is not a bubble. This is not a little echo chamber of just we're talking about it in opera. We are so far behind. Check your privilege and look at the context in which you're making this argument against everybody else's gentle um, dialogue and attempts to to open up your eyes and I think it's a sort of extreme viewpoint it's sort of like the thing with approaching the canon it's the defense of the perfection of the canon or it's smash it and I absolutely think there's that middle ground of those works and the works being made by that demographic of artists now are to be honored and are to be respected and are to be to be enjoyed and to be fostered. And and my goodness, we've got wonderful artists working out there who are in that demographic. However, we need to acknowledge the limitations of that worldview. And I think there's also a difference that gets conflated, again, between a story that is centrally about a discriminated against demographic of people that is centrally about their human experience and their way of living in the world and the difficulties of that experience in particular, versus a character of that demographic appearing as part of someone else's story. And while obviously the latter also requires a great deal of respect and research and and honouring of that culture or that demographic, it is not the same as going, well, I'm a middle-aged white heterosexual man that is trying to see through the eyes of a young black lesbian. And the way that those elements of her uniqueness transform the way she sees the world and she goes through her life. So we have a responsibility as those in privilege to go, is this my story to tell? Mm. And yeah, I could because I'm freaking talented or, you know, I I really, it's a great story. So collaborate with somebody of that demographic who perhaps doesn't have the artistic skill that you have. Um, Pass it on to somebody who you know perhaps is also working in that field and you say, this might be a story for you and Mm. support that project. Maybe say, why don't we work together? You bring this to the table. I'll be your dramaturg or... Something like that. I think there are ways around it. I very much look forward to <laughs> to condensing that point and using it in my own arguments because that's really eloquently put. Thank you. Laura, thank you very much. That's very great to speak to you. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. 
If you're interested in catching Laura's work in action, she will be directing Cosi Fantute with the English Touring Opera. There are performances across the UK between March and May, following initial shows at the Hackney Empire on the 29th of February and the 6th of March. Coming up, concerts. What have we got, Sam? On Saturday the 30th of November at Royal Festival Hall, there's a concert performance of Benjamin Britten's Peter Grimes from the Bergen Phil, who are a very fine orchestra, with musicians from the Royal Northern College of Music under Edward Gardner. It's featuring Stuart Skelton, who is an absolute champ as Grimes, and Roddy Williams, who seems to be living at Southbank Centre at the moment, as Captain Balstrode. Mm, Tuesday the 3rd of December, which is Vaben's birthday, at the Milton Court Concert Hall in Barbican, Canadian string quartet Quattro Bozzini play contemporary works by Naomi Pinnock, who I googled and is quite cool, Michael Finnessy, Lara Agar and Joshua Hathaway. Also on Tuesday the 3rd, you can catch percussionist Joby Burgess at the Royal Northern College of Music Concert Hall in Manchester playing a non-stop soundtrack of 20th century classics from the east and west coasts of the US. Thursday the 6th of December, Dave Brubeck's birthday. Take five on it. At lunchtime in Birmingham, wind players from the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, along with oboist Francois Lelou, play Mozart's Serenade No. 10, the grand party to the greatest piece of wind music of all time. Ever. Uh, also on the 6th, as well as on the 7th, you can catch Colin Curry and the Colin Curry group perform Steve Reich's drumming at the South Bank Centre. That's a late one. It's at like 9.30 or something. It'd be very cool with Colin Curry. Saturday the 7th of December, St Mary's Battersea, the Platinum Consort, are performing Monteverdi's Christmas Vespers, a reimagined edition put together by the late musicologist Dennis Stevens from other rarely heard psalm settings by the Italian master. Also on that night, the Barbican, BBC Symphony Orchestra, playing Detlev Glanet's Requiem for Hieronymus Bosch. And up in Glasgow, the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra are giving a concert of works by the Swiss composer, contemporary Heinz Holliger, with the violinist Ilya Gringoltz. Is that not the Harry Potter bank? Yes, it is. We should also mention that from the 7th to the 15th of December, you can catch the London Contemporary Music Festival, a mix of music, art and poetry based here in London. It'd be a shame not to catch that. Sunday the 8th of December, Sibelius and Martinu's birthday. They were alive at the same time. I wonder if they ever shared celebrations. That'd, That'd be a good be party. Nice. At King's Place... The 50th anniversary concert of Gavin Bryars Sinking of the Titanic, featuring the composer himself, as well as the Gavin Bryars Ensemble. From the 5th to the 18th of December, you can catch The Lobster with a live score performed by the Solemn Quartet in Brixton, Hackney, West Norwood, Crouch End and Brighton. We interviewed two of the Solemn Quartet last week. They had some great things to say. Go back and listen to the last episode. Next, on Tuesday the 10th, which is Messier and César Frank's birthday, at the Barbican, the wonderful soprano Angela Giorgio will be giving a solo recital accompanied by the pianist Alexandra Dariescu. Completing our theme of double birthdays, Wednesday the 11th was Hector Berlioz and Elliot Carter's birthday. Our final recommendation is Diversions on Thursday the 12th of December at the Queen's Hall, Edinburgh. For the first time, disabled musicians from Drake Music Scotland's Digital Orchestra will join with the Hebrides Ensemble to form a collaboration between acoustic and digital musicians. There's also BSL interpretation and there will be a chill-out space. So bring a cushion and a blanket and soak it all up.
Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. A big thank you to David Biedenbender and his excellent goatee. They supplied that recording of the Charles Ives Unanswered Question with the University of Michigan School of Music, Theatre and Dance. A big thank you to Tessa for helping us out with the recording of the Alison Balsam. And, of course, to Milo for coming and sitting next to me on a cushion at that concert. I did not want it to end.